Okay, good morning everybody. It is a pleasure to see everyone. Thank you for, for joining virtually and, and in person. We have a very special opportunity today to welcome in from New Jersey, zooming across um, time and space, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Weissman. Rabbi Weissman is a, a very dear friend and respected mentor of mine, um, who is the Menial of the Beth Din of America. And uh, to Baruch Hashem, one of the most respected, transparent, um, based in, um, in America and in the world, and uh, respected by the Rabbi Nota Rashid in Israel for, for, for its incredible work, and, and also a, uh, a based in which uh, his name walks in front of it. And I had the opportunity of working um, as an intern many years ago for Rabbi Weissman in the based in America, and, uh, and uh, just to see the incredible work that he does the, the limited amount of time that he has and how he is able with his calm and his tenacity to be able to handle and juggle all the complexities of Jewish life within the framework of halacha. And I've, uh, it really was truly a, a, truly a privilege. And thank you, Raul Weissman, for taking the time to, to join us today from, from, uh, from afar and from near. So um, what we're going to do is, is, if it's all right, I'm going to start off as if I'm completely clueless of this, of this whole process and I want to just sort of really ask you just a few questions because you, you, you were involved in the creation and the continuation of the process called the Halachic Prenup and we're doing a, a course now called the Crash Course in the Jewish Life Cycle. So we're trying to um, understand the, the pieces we just finished talking about and learning a little bit about engagement through, that, through the, the realm of, of Judaism and before we get to marriage we're now going to deal, we'll spend one session talking about the prenup. Now, when we talk about prenup, sometimes in, in the, the prenup in the non-Jewish world is a legal document that, that sort of talks about possessions and assets and who's taking things in. But the Allah prenup is a little different. Can you just give us a little bit of background as to uh, what, 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 what is the prenup in the first place to, uh, to understand where we're coming from? Yeah, so the prenup, well, first of all, thank you very much, Rory Trump, for having me. Um, uh, uh, it's a pleasure and an honor. Sorry, I couldn't make it in person, but uh, this is second best, and uh, hopefully this will work. This will work well. I'm looking forward to talking about the prenup. So the prenup is a response to a crisis uh, that um, is really of the modern age. Uh, historically, the concept of an aguna was someone who was unable to remarry because their husband, a woman, was unable to move on with their life. Missing a husband, husband lost at sea or what, war or, or some casualty happened and missing. We couldn't prove that he was dead, so she couldn't remarry. Um, and yet she didn't have a husband, so she was kind of stuck. Uh, and so classically in the rabbinic literature, uh, there's you know many thousands of pages of ink spelled, spilled on dealing with the problem of the classical aguna, of a woman who was unable to move on with her life because her husband was missing. The modern day aguna, is a slightly different problem where we know that where the husband is, it's just that he's refusing to give a get. And that's more a problem of the modern age, first of all, because of the prevalence of divorce. Uh, first of all, divorce rates were much lower, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, etc. Uh, and number two, because in the olden days, when a couple got divorced, the rabbi of the town would typically wield his authority and make sure that everything worked out okay. He'd figure out the, the local Besdin would figure out who gets what money, how, what happens with the kids, how you deal with the practicalities of divorce. And it was expected that the get would be given. Uh, and if you didn't give a get, you'd, get, you'd be in trouble. And in this viewer community, in the you know, old time shtetl, 
if you were not found in favor by the leadership of the community, it would not be comfortable for you. It wasn't a comfortable way to live, and there was very little mobility. You couldn't just pick up and move to the next shtetl because it was hard to do that, uh, and because the next shtetl would also give you a problem. There was centralized rabbinic authority, and it meant that you had to listen to the rabbis and give a get if you knew what was better uh, for you. In the modern times, as we know, this is a free country, and people could do whatever they want, and that led to a problem where people would get divorced and or would be undergoing a divorce process they might finalize their civil divorce and the get would be used as a point of either leverage uh in a divorce negotiation a husband or a wife for that matter we can talk about the differences but more commonly in terms of the problem we're talking about the husband could withhold the get could decline to give the get and that would really put the woman in a bind and even if the local rabbis would give him a problem, you know, he might just move to the next community. He might not be from anymore. He might be outside of the community altogether. He might not be susceptible to any kind of social pressure. And so it became a real problem where husbands, uh, like I said, more commonly were withholding getting from their wives, making it difficult, using it for negotiation leverage, using it in some extreme cases for extortion, or just for spite, not giving a get despite the functional end of a marriage. And so the prenup was conceived to address this problem and to um, ensure that there was a structure in place that would uh, incentivize the giving of the get. And uh, it essentially consists of two main provisions. One is that it says that in the event of a divorce, the Bethden of America will be the Bezdin that will deal with the issue of when the get should be given, whether a get should be given. That's number one. Uh, number two is it gave a financial incentive for the giving of the get in the form of spousal support. So for every day that the couple is not living together and the wife makes it know that she wants to invoke the provisions of the prenup, the husband has to pay her $150 per day um, in spousal support. And that clearly provides an incentive. The second that he gives a get, the spousal support obligation falls away, and he's no longer on the hook to pay that money. That aligns their interests and hopefully brings about a get. Those two provisions, the arbitration provision, naming the best of America, and the support obligation together work well to uh, align incentives and ensure that a get is given in a timely manner. We can talk a little more why each one is really essential, and why, given the the process that, that plays out in these divorce cases, why you need to name a specific Besden in order for it to work well, and why you need to have the financial support obligation. And I should also mention that it's a legal document. So it's signed by the, the husband-to-be and the wife-to-be, the Hassan and the Kala, prior to the wedding, prior to their marriage. It's a legally binding and enforceable document. Uh, the courts respect it. It's structured as a arbitration uh, through the arbitration framework. So the Beth in America is the arbitrator and we have authority to issue decisions, awards under the Arbitration Act, uh, the arbitration statutes, and, uh, and it's enforceable in court and that's kind of how it all works together. So that's in a nutshell kind of what, what the prenup is. Amazing, so let's, let, okay, if we could just uh, sort of unpack that a little bit, just explore that. Um, so the provision you mentioned of going to the based in America, 
Why is that, let's say, if you could just help explain why that's necessary. Why can't it be that just a person has to go to Basin in general? Like, why, why is the Basin of America um, necessary for this process? How could they be taken advantage of without that provision? Yeah, so it's worthwhile. Let's take a step back and just talk about how this process works when there's not a prenup in place. Typically, in any situation where there's a dispute between two people, whether it's in the matrimonial realm or in the commercial realm, any kind of dispute between two people, uh, it's supposed to be resolved as a matter of halakha and bezdin. You're not supposed to go to court. Um, that's a whole separate discussion. We can talk about that another time. But you're supposed to resolve, Jews are supposed to resolve their disputes in bezdin. Uh, and the way that you initiate a, um, a suit in Besden is you contact the plaintiff, let's say, will contact the Besden that he wants, he or she wants to bring his case to, uh, and will initiate a hasmana process. A hasmana literally means invitation. In this case, it's more of a summons. The Besden will send to the defendant a letter, a hasmana, that says, we've been contacted by plaintiff X uh, with respect to this claim. Um, you know, the claim uh, described on the attached claim letter, um, and you have, let's say, two weeks to respond as to whether you're prepared to come to Besden. Now, in the United States and in, in really all over the world, except maybe in Israel, um, or I shouldn't say that in many, but let's say in the United States, what we're talking about, there's no centralized Besden system. So there's not one Besden that has authority over the country or over any particular region, generally speaking. Um, and so the way that the Shulchan Aruch provides for this Hasmana to play out is the defendant doesn't have to go to the Besdin chosen by the plaintiff because there's nothing obligating her to do so. He has the right to name a different Besdin. And sometimes that's what happens. We'll send out a Hasmana to a, to a defendant. The defendant will say, I don't want to go to Bethlehem of America. I want to go to Mahola in Muncie. Or I want to go to some other Besdin in Brooklyn or wherever. Um, uh, when that happens and there's no meeting of the minds as to a particular Besdin, things get a little bit complicated. And what you're supposed to do is uh, a Zabla, where each one chooses a Dayan, the two Dayan choose a third. But suffice it to say that there's no structure in place for someone to really be in charge until the parties agree on a particular Besdin or on a joint Besdin. And so in the, in the context of an Aguna, of a Get, if a wife, let's say, is looking for a divorce, we're looking for a get, and we send out a hasmana to a husband, he can very easily respond, I don't want to go to the Bethlehem of America, I want to go to Bethlehem X or Bethlehem Y. And that complicates the process, because not every Bethlehem has the same uh, standards and expectations in terms of the timing of the get, in terms of whether the get can be used for negotiation leverage, and it is part of the problem that existed before the prenup was created in the sense that there was no one Besden in charge that could streamline and be a clearinghouse for all cases. And you ended up with stalemates over but they didn't and, and basically getting stuck in the mud on that issue, not advancing the ability to get a get in any meaningful way. And so the first um, provision of the prenup, the first section of the prenup, which says that the Bethden of America is the uh, is the address for resolving the timing of the get, whether there should be a get, when there should be a get, etc. That addresses that problem by putting them both squarely in front of the Bethlehem of America and giving us the authority to issue decisions. I understand. And, uh, and just when you, when you mentioned expectations and um, standards, the Bethlehem of America, can you give an example of something which 
which um, is unique to, to the space in process, which perhaps might not necessarily be a given elsewhere? Yeah, so this kind of gets into a, a complicated, not complicated, but a controversial area when it comes to these issues of Gitten. The, the, the one kind of major hot button issue in terms of a controversy over a get is when the get will be given. Very often the dynamic that plays out is the woman who's concerned about the get and is in the more vulnerable position with respect to the get, we can talk about why, uh, she'll be worried about the get from the outset and she'll want to make sure that she has the get up front. And so as, as soon as they kind of realize this marriage is over and they're headed down the pathway of divorce, often a woman will be focused on the get because she's worried about not getting a get. And the husband might be less focused on the get because he kind of has it in his back pocket. Um, he's not as worried. We can talk about why there's a difference between a man and a woman. But in any event, in, in, in any case, in any given situation, one party might be more concerned about the get than the other. And the question then arises as to when the get should be given. So different Vatay Din have different practices as to when the get should be given. The Besden of America generally is oriented towards the view that as soon as it's clear that the marriage is over functionally and they're not going to get reconciled, they're not going to get back together, it's appropriate to give the get at that point because the get can serve as a distraction otherwise. You know, you worry that the husband's not going to give a get, you worry about um, the party's not behaving properly and getting involved in other relationships and that could be disastrous if there's no get. You worry about the get being used for negotiation leverage in the in the uh, in the divorce process. And so it's better to get the get off the table and just do it sooner rather than later. That actually is a minority view in the in, in, you know as compared to other but they didn't. And the more Haredi but they didn't, the more Hamish but they didn't, uh, the view is generally that it's better to give the get once everything is all resolved. That's based on the fact that the Ramah himself, in uh, in the back of the Shulchan Aruch of, of uh, Eben Ezer, when he talks, when, when the Shulchan Aruch goes through the actual Seder Haget, the Ramah comments that uh, the Masader Gittin, the rabbi who's arranging the get, should ascertain that everyone's worked out all the financial issues. Um, and there are reasons for that, um, but the Ramah says that, and that's why many Bhatti didn't take the view that it's better to give the get later. That kind of button issue of when the get should take place before or after will often kind of um, mean that you know one party wants to go to this Besden, one party wants to go to that Besden, and that's why choice of Besden is an important issue. Understood. I actually see there's a few questions. If we could just note the questions, we'll maybe do a few Q and at the end. I just want to get through a few, few basics. Please, please do note those questions. Um, I just uh, a few, a few, a few details. One is that you know I actually I printed these out and I apologize. Um, they're they're, they're uh, behind a door that I can't reach right now. Um, but um, when you look at the, the prenup, so the, the, the Bethlehem of America prenup, you know, I, I, you read it through, and just as a layperson, not as a lawyer, and I know we have some, um, so, so, some lawyers in the room, but you don't see the word get at all. In fact, you don't see the word divorce in it. So if you have a prenup which is governing how the end of marriage works, like why, is, why is that absent from the actual document itself? It's, it's confusing. A lot of couples will come to me and say, I just don't understand what it means. Yeah, so this gets to kind of one of the hurdles that the, the Rabbanim, the Poskim that first came up with this idea and first implemented it, uh, had to overcome. And that is the halachic concern that is attendant to any discussion about uh, incentivizing the giving of a get, 
The halachic concern of a get musa, of a forced get. The Torah says that the husband has to give the get of his own free will. Um, and the post can, you know, the Gemara and the post can kind of work that through. And it's, it's a real thing. You're not allowed to force a husband to give a get. Now, we all know famously that the Rambam says you could you could beat a husband. Those halakhas are complicated. They're limited to situation, to particular situations where there's a finding by the Bezdin that a husband fits into a certain category, in which case maybe there might be sometimes where you could force a husband to give a get. Practically speaking, it's not workable nowadays anyway because you can never force a husband to give a get. In the United States, you get thrown into jail if you try to beat a husband. So, but suffice it to say that as a halakhic matter, a get has to be given of the husband's own free will. And the question then arises, what about economic coercion? If the husband feels like he's only giving the get uh, because he wants to avoid making a payment, is that considered of his own free will? Is that considered coercion? And the general approach, I think, of a broad-based uh, array of postkim, and the postkim kind of put this together and thought about how to structure a prenup that would work, is that there's absolutely nothing wrong with charging a husband spousal support because that's simply a function of his being married. If you're married, there's a natural, uh, a natural consequence of that is that you have to support your wife. It's an obligation in the ksuba. It's a halakhic obligation. And so all we're doing here is quantifying that amount at $150 a day and making it enforceable. And there's nothing bad about that. We want uh, a husband's obligation to pay Mizonos, to pay spousal support to his wife, to be enforceable. And because that's the kind of framework of this document, it's really not meant to punish someone for, for not giving a get, but rather it's meant to align incentives so that the husband bears the consequence of remaining married. Uh, the document doesn't mention a get at all. It simply says this is a document that kind of complements the ksuba and says the natural consequence of being married is you have to pay your wife's spousal support. And by not putting the word get in there, we stay far, far away from any uh, um, uh, contention or any kind of uh, argument that this is a forced get, that this is a penalty provision, that this is uh, a way to get a get. This is simply a, a complementary document to the Ksuba that says the husband has certain obligations. And the result of that might be that yeah, he, you know, he'll want to give a get earlier rather than later. Um, but, but that's the long answer to why, why the word get is not in there. So why can't the wife just play games? Like, I mean, what does the husband to, do, to be says, look, you know, like maybe she'll, she'll, uh, she'll pull this on me three years later and said, really all this time I want you to do to, to, to this. Well, like what triggers it in the sense that is like formalized, the husband's not going to be left a victim to this? Yeah, it's a good question. The answer in, in uh, the early days of the cleanup, that was actually an issue. There were one or two cases that arose where the husband and wife were kind of happily going through a divorce and fighting with their lawyers, and no one even raised the issue of the get. And then all of a sudden, you know, two years into their divorce, the wife comes to Besden and says, you owe me $100,000 because you were supposed to be paying me $150 a day from the time we separated. Uh, there's actually a, a really fascinating case from Maryland where we had to deal with that issue and the Besden of America denied the wife's claim for that spousal support. The husband ended up going to court and uh, and uh, the court ended up having to deal with the handling of the case by the Besden of America. Fascinating decision. I could send you the citation from Trump so you could share it with the lawyer. Thank you. Anyone else interested. It's called Lang v. Levy. It's a Maryland case 
from 2009, I think, or something like that. But anyway, that, that was a problem, and we changed the text of the prenup in around 2008, I think it was, to say that the spousal support obligation doesn't really get triggered until they're separated and the wife makes an application for the spousal support. So the way it's structured is that she waives any support prior to her written notification to the husband of her intent to collect the support. And then, and then you don't have the problem of it accruing in the background without anyone paying attention. It only becomes relevant once she asks for it. Right, so there's a specific point in time which is very clear so there's a, a, on both sides as well right. then. And does that, does that have to go through the base tin or does that go to the husband? Like how's that, how, what's the process of, let's say, her making that, uh, that, that uh, written request? It's a written request. You're supposed to sign and notarize it and send it to the husband. Um, we actually, I'll give you a preview of coming attractions. Uh, we're about to come up with a new version of the prenup. You know, every few years we make slight tweaks. Um, and one of the edits in the, next, in, this, in the new version that's going to come out uh, probably in a, shortly is that initiating the hasmana process for a get will trigger that obligation anyway. So that's that you don't have to, right. Yeah, the wife doesn't have to actually send a written notification. She can just send hasmana from the bed, and that'll automatically trigger it. That'll, that'll, that'll just make it a little more streamlined. Fantastic. And what about the people who come to me and say, you know, listen, $150 a day, right? So, um, and let's say the wife's son will say, but like, that's nothing in, in, in certain areas and certain, you know, in certain uh, spaces in the American Jewish community. And for all you know, you can have a, a husband or a husband's family who's willing to pay this, you know, for 10 years just to just, just for whatever, whatever, you know, whether it's spite or cruelty or custody, whatever it is that they're, 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 they're playing the game with. So like $150, how did that come into being and, and how effective is it in your, in your experience? Yeah, so that's a good question. $150 a day goes back to 2003. I think originally the first versions of the prenup were $100 a day, and then they raised it to $150 in 2003, and it stayed at $150 until, since 2003. Now, obviously, anyone knows, who knows anything about economics will say that is ridiculous. The amount should now be something like $250 a day because simply because of inflation. Uh, first of all, I should point out that the document itself indexes the number to inflation. So if you got married in 2003 and it was $150 a day, the amount now is probably something like $250 a day. Um, but we haven't changed the form, and it's still $150 a day. Um, I think we'll probably end up changing it soon because inflation is just making $150 a day a, a, you know, a sum that's, that's much too low. The reason there's been reluctance to change it is because of that um, is because of the fact that there are always kind of critics in the background complaining that the prenup cause, causes easily. It, cause, you know, it renders the get um, a forced get because really it's a penalty provision. And so the, you know, Rabbi Willig and the postkim who have you know, endorsed the prenup feel comfortable with it being an artificially deflated number because it just furthers the argument that this is not a penalty. This is, if anything, a lowball number that's a... Uh, you know, a minimal support obligation, and it's not anything close to a penalty. I, I think it, at some point we're just going to have to raise it, and I, I'm guessing that's going to be soon. So, so finding this balance between what's effective and also avoiding the concerns of actually overturning it as a get, Melissa, which is the right. So, exactly. the, 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 so which means to say that if that would be done, 
then those from the, another community would say the get's not valid, which is also terrifying. Um, so that's that's that, that matters. But let me right. let me ask you: How long has the the prenup been in existence? And from whether it's anecdotal or or um, or, or actually statistical um, evidence, uh, how, um, how effective has it been in that journey? How, how long is, uh, have, have we, do we have to even look at? Yeah, it was developed in uh, mid, or, I guess the mid-1990s. Rabbi Willig uh, did it in con consultation with and in conjunction with Rav Zalman Nechemi Goldberg and other posts in, in Israel. Um, and so it was probably for the earliest versions that I've seen of you know signed prenups in this form have been the in 1996, 1997 or so, um, maybe 1995 even. So it was the mid 1990s. There were that's not really the earliest iteration of this prenup. The idea of this prenup kind of goes back to a article that was written uh, by Rizalman Chami Goldberg earlier than that, and. Rabbi Willig likes to point out that, in fact, the Nakla Shiva, which is a medieval uh, sefer uh, that collects documents, actually mentions a similar support obligation in Tanaim that were signed at weddings back in, I don't know, the 1500s or whatever it was. And I think there's even a note in the Nakla Shiva that says that it's part of Takanas Shum that goes back to the old Takanas of. Uh, of those three cities in Germany. So, you know, it has kind of ancient or at least medieval, um, uh, you know, precursors, but the modern day prenup that was meant to address the Aguna problem dates to an article in the early 1990s that was then worked on by Rabbi Willig and introduced ultimately into, into you know, our community in the, in the late 1990s. Um, you asked how effective it's been. The answer is it's been extremely effective. My, my data is anecdotal, but I kind of see the cases that roll through the Besden that cause problems and the cases that roll through the Besden that move smoothly towards a get. And enodome, a case where there's no prenup to a case where there's a prenup. Where a case where there's a prenup, it's pretty smooth sailing. Sometimes there are hiccups. We don't even know about every successful case where there's a prenup because sometimes they end up just scheduling the get and they don't even present the prenup. We don't have to arbitrate. We don't have to work through the, you know, the prenup as a contentious issue. It's just there in the background, and the parties just do the get because they know that prenup sets up the expectation for an earlier get, and that it's going to be problematic if they don't do a get. Every once in a while, we have a case. A few times a year, we have cases where people are actually arbitrating the provisions of the prenup, and they come in front of the Besden, and we have to deal with it. Um, I could say that there's, you know, of the thousands and thousands of cases um, where the prenup has been in existence and has resulted in a successful get, there's probably a very small handful of cases where it's not been successful for various reasons, either because uh, one of the spouses you know, had too much money or too little money, so it kind of was worth playing the long game to try to get a payout. Uh, and uh, you know, a, a spouse who's withholding a get, let's say, is judgment-proof and just is down and out and doesn't have anything to lose, that might be a reason why the prenup doesn't work. Um, you know, those are the outlier cases. I could only think of, you know, one or two cases over the 16 years I've been in Besden where um, the prenup hasn't worked remarkably smoothly. Well, incredible. And so I just, uh, 
I mean, in terms of it's being upheld in secular court, does it have any? So, I mean, meaning to say, it is it has the, the it's a binding arbitration agreement. But so let's say it's let's say it's taken to court. So somebody somebody now um, wants to contest the the effectiveness. Ha, has it made its way to court? If so, successfully, unsuccessfully, partially? Yeah. So it has. There are not many cases where the prenup's been challenged and been kind of addressed by the courts head on. I think that's because it's just not worth it. It's easier, at, you know, the prenup is just having the prenup in place and, and having a arbitration award from the Bethlehem of America and awarding the, the money or even the threat of that is enough to incentivize the giving of the get. It's just not worth fighting it. So that itself speaks to the effectiveness of the prenup even, even uh, without actual court cases. There's one Connecticut case uh, from uh, also I think around 2009, maybe 2011 or something called Light v. Light, where the court upheld the prenup against constitutional challenges. Um, and I think there might be one in New York, like a bench decision where the prenup was effectively um, upheld. I don't think it's a published decision. Um, there's the light, there, there's the, the, the Maryland case I mentioned before, it doesn't really deal with a challenge to the prenup. But it's a good example of a court dealing with the prenup seriously, and you know, it's kind of the inverse. It's striking down a claim for the prenup, where the Beth in America itself said you can't claim the money because no one had asked for a get. But you know, you could kind of see that the court deals with it on a serious level. It, it's it's hard to imagine why a court wouldn't enforce the prenup. It's a um, a neutral financial obligation that's you know plays out through arbitration. There's nothing controversial. Legally, I think about the prenup. You know that that's borne out by the light the light decision from Connecticut. I think it, you'd, you'd expect that any court would uphold it. And so let's say, like you know, thankfully when I deal with young couples and I meet every every couple that go that gets married in Arshul, and uh, this is just a, a, a basic. It's a it's a given. Um, and certainly, I would not marry anybody without a prenup. But like you know, I find that that uh, thankfully today it's become a norm in the sense that any you know any, any young man who's certainly gone to through the YU Turo world, you know it's not you know the, the Rabbanim talk about it. So it's something which is more obvious. Uh, but sometimes you'll have people who just aren't schooled in this. Their families aren't, and so on. And and a lot of times the sense is that this is made uh, to get the guy. Like it's a disadvantage to the guy. Like how do you respond to a young couple coming? And saying like you know why why would I put myself in the in the situation how how do you respond to that? Yeah, I, I would respond by saying if you believe that if a marriage is not successful and is is go, is, is going to go end with a divorce, that the get should be given as a matter of course, and it shouldn't end up as part and parcel of the fight between the couple, and it shouldn't be withheld, and there should be no opportunity really for a husband to withhold the get out of spite or for leverage or for any reason. If you believe that fundamentally, then you should sign the prenup. It's not out to get anyone. It's simply meant to put the system back to a place where the rabbis and the local din have the authority to ensure that a get is given when a get should be given. Um, that's how I would, that's, a, you know, that's the answer I would give anyone. Um, I, when I got married, my wife-to-be was a base Yaakov girl from Toronto. She had never heard of the prenup. And I explained to her that we have to sign this thing because, you know, even though it's kind of uh, in theory, as you, as you put it, against my interests, you know, a marriage is supposed to be built on mutual trust and mutual appreciation. 
it's not supposed to be a, a you know a, a gotcha game where you, you end up putting your your wife to be in a in a inferior position should should it ever kind of you know not not work out um, and I think the prenup is a kind of stands for that proposition that a marriage is a an institution that's supposed to be built on respect and mutual dignity. You know, actually, um, I, I agree with this. It's so interesting because when you read it, it's, it's interesting. It really, uh, as, 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 it, as you worded it, it's, it's meant to be something which guides the structure of marriage. And so it's, it's meant to be something which creates the framework so that the relationship can work well. And, and just on that note, I just, uh, my question that, that a lot of people always ask is on the first page is this gray box, right? So this section of it, you want to just talk to me about like, like what, what is this? Is it necessary? What do you advise people? Like what, what happens on that first page before the, the signatures? Yeah, so the, the gray box is an optional section in the document uh, that couples could opt into that calls for or provides for the arbitration of all end of marriage issues in the event of divorce. So all the prenup that we've been talking about until now really just deals with the get and the support obligation. But as everyone knows, if a couple gets divorced, there are all sorts of issues they need to deal with. They need to deal with financial issues, splitting up assets, splitting up the house, uh, 401ks, spousal support, child support, child custody, visitation issues. So there's lots of stuff that has to get done. The courts are notorious for being very slow. And if that was true 10 years ago, it's doubly true today or triply true today. The courts are way backed up. Um, and so as a, on a practical level, there's good reason to sign a document before you get married that says, if, God forbid, our marriage doesn't work out and we end up getting divorced, let's go to a Besden where there's a streamlined process that's neutral, that's fair to both sides for giving up property, issuing child support awards, figuring out custody visitation, etc. That's the practical argument for signing the optional section. The halakhic argument for signing the optional section is, as I mentioned before, uh, there is actually a Torah prohibition against litigating in secular court. Two Jews who are involved in any kind of dispute are not supposed to be litigating in secular court. They're supposed to be litigating in Besdin. And so signing the optional section puts you front and square in front of the Bethlehem of America to resolve it. If you don't sign the optional section, you could still later agree to litigate your divorce <coughs> excuse me, in Besdin, but there's no guarantee you're going to end up there because almost inevitably, or in many cases at least, you're going to, you know, these two people are not involved in a functional relationship. They basically end up arguing about everything. And one thing they're going to argue about is which Besdin should hear the case. When you sign this optional section on the prenup, you dispense with that whole problem and you end up in front of the Bethlehem of America and you end up getting divorced in a much cheaper and easier and better way than if you were, God forbid, to be in front of the courts. And, so, and, and just like, let's say, let's say somebody says, look, I'm, I'm considering putting this box, but I'm, you know, like, I just, I just know that the, the court system has like a playbook for, for divorce. Right. Right? There's, there's alimony, there's all these things. When it comes to basin, like, how am I supposed to know that it's going to be a fair, you know, I'm, I'm signing, by signing this, I would essentially be putting myself to um, uh, under the jurisdiction of you know a, a group of rabbis and you know, might not understand the the the, co the exigencies of, of life and the complexities of of, of looking after so many children like w w um, why would i do that yeah so this is an area where you have to know which best you are dealing with 
different Bate Din have different reputations. And I wouldn't just blindly sign an arbitration agreement agreeing to have my divorce handled by any Besdin. You'd have to know the Besdin. I can only speak for the Besdin of America, and I can tell you that we have a few practices and policies in place that I think address some of those concerns. So, for example, when we're dealing with child custody and visitation issues, there's always a mental health professional either on the panel or as a consultant to the panel there at the hearings sitting in and dealing with the custody and visitation issues. That's a step better than court, I think, because the judge is relying on experts, but it's not like the expert is involved in the full adjudication of the case. So that's one thing that the Besdin of America has. We are staffed with lawyers. I'm an attorney by practice, by education, by experience. And on any given case at the Besdin of America, there's at least one lawyer sitting on the panel. And so there's that orientation and knowledge about the way divorces in the United States are conducted and what market practices are and what decisions look like and what they should look like. The Besdin of America, generally speaking, will follow equitable distribution when dividing up assets. That's based on the theory that when couples in the United States get married, they do so with the expectation that their assets are shared and that the way that their non-Jewish neighbor, their assets might get distributed is probably similar to the way that they expect their assets to be distributed. And so based on Tanaisha Mamunkayim, that parties are free to contract, the Besdin will recognize that implicit understanding of the parties as governing their case. And so generally speaking, the financial decisions in the Besdin of America will look somewhat similar to what you'd expect to see in court, give or take. So our reputation, I think, is such that we have a fair, transparent process that's governed by a set of rules and procedures that has professionals involved, that has professionals that are knowledgeable about divorce cases, about the finances, about the custody issues, about the psychology, and we bring that professionalism to the table. And I think we've done well over the years in ensuring an even playing field when we handle divorce cases. Well, what about the other way around? Do you ever see a situation where a woman refuses to receive a get as a leverage to the husband? I mean, like we're talking a lot of times about the other way around. And if so, does this offer any help in those situations? Yeah, it can happen. We do have a handful of cases each year of a woman who is not cooperating with the process where a man wants to give a get. The majority of cases are not that way, and I think that's because, generally speaking, I think it has to do partially with just the way divorces and the litigation process is structured. It's also because a man, when push comes to shove, if a woman in the long term refuses to receive a get, a man has other options such as getting a hetermei or a bunim. Our Besdin doesn't do it except in cases of medical incapacity, but other Besdin will issue a hetermei or a bunim, which is a dispensation for a husband to take on a second wife where his first wife is refusing to receive a get. There are other situations where we might be able to do a get even without the participation of a wife, such as, for example, if the wife is 
um, involved in intimate relationships with other people. The Besden could do a get without her involvement. So there are ways around the Aguna problem that exists for a man that just for structural halakhic reasons don't exist for a woman. Um, I mean, it's based on the basic premise that a man is allowed to have more than one wife, a woman is not allowed to have more than one husband. And so she's in much deeper trouble with respect to the get. And so because of the, all those dynamics, the majority of cases are where the husband's withholding a get. That said, we do have a reciprocal version of the prenup where uh, it puts that same incentive in place both ways. So each side was obligated to pay $150 a day to the other until one doesn't listen to the president and then the other side's obligation falls away and that party remains in place and then you know so, so we do have a reciprocal version the reason the reciprocal version is not the standard version is because a lot of the postkin that kind of initially supported the prenup and rabbi willard who initially wrote the prenup are more comfortable with the traditional structure that's modeled after the ksuba Right? The prenup is not radical at all by any stretch of the imagination because all it is is saying that the ksuba obligations of the husband to pay support for the wife are now being enforced. That, you know, it's easy. When it comes to making it reciprocal, that's a little more radical from a halakhic perspective. And so some of the postkin were kind of wanted to stay away from that and, and were more comfortable with the standard version. That said, even those postkin who only endorse the standard version, I think generally will be okay with the reciprocal. Rabbi Willig is okay with the reciprocal version. He thinks it's enforceable and doesn't present any halakhic problem. It's just that uh, the preferred structure, from, in his mind, is is the standard version. I mean, also, I guess the hardest question I find with, with us is when dealing with these things is that um, is when whenever there's a marriage, when it comes to uh, when it comes to the let's say the more right wing community, you hear a lot of resistance. You hear a lot of resistance from we don't know about this and this is not uh, something we did and and. Uh, and uh, and I've I've had to I've had to fight those fights and had to make those calls and it's usually it's it's just like speaking to the wall, um, no one's no one's interested. We're not uh, and and unfortunately most of the situations that I'm dealing with, when on the other end when the Aguna situation emerges is from those kind of situations when there was somebody who was not willing to sign it and now and now fast forward 10, 15, 20 um, years and now we're now we're stuck with this terrible situation. Um, the biggest drain of pain and money you can imagine. So, um, so um, why is it? Why, uh, why is it that this, the, the right-wing world is, is so hesitant um, to, to this? Is it, is it a valid hesitation? Like how, do, how, do we, how do we live with ourselves? Yeah, I, it, it's a little bit of a puzzle. The, the, a lot of times when you talk to people within that world about this, their initial hesitation is a halakhic hesitation. How can this be done? It's going to lead to a get Musa. But when you drill down and you talk to someone knowledgeable and you say, there's no Eastway problem here at all. This is simply, as I said before, quantifying the obligation under the Ksuba. Like, the, the, the objections don't really even get off the ground in any meaningful way. And I think, you know, you win that argument. But, but there's some kind of cultural reticence to introducing newfangled notions and newfangled concepts and, uh, and instruments, especially in, you know, kind of very old and ancient practices like that of a wedding. And I think that's part of it. I think also part of it is that there's not really a full recognition that this is a really, really a crisis and that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. I'm not sure why that is. Um, I think there's, 
more of a kind of a complacency that says, look, if the Torah says that the husband gives a get and the husband gets to decide when the get's given, so it's not the end of the world if he has a little bit of more of negotiation leverage as a result of that. Whereas I think someone with more of a um, of sensibilities like, like, you know, towards justice and towards mishpat and towards of fairness would say, that's crazy. Why should a halachic instrument be ever utilized in order to modify what someone's entitled to as a matter of halacha in terms of the money? Um, so, you know, I don't know. I don't really have a full grasp of it. It's hard to really understand why this isn't something that hasn't been embraced full on by a much broader swath of the community. So it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing. I, sometimes I hear is, is that we shouldn't be talking about divorce before marriage. We shouldn't be talking. Why, why introduce the concept of divorce before marriage? As if nobody knows about divorce or what's going on um, in the community in general. Um, how, do, how do you respond to, to, to that claim? I, I, I think I've heard people make that argument. To me, that, that just is a complete cop-out. Meaning, you want to talk to me about whether the Aguna problem is really a problem, whether it's as prevalent as people think it is, whether it's so terrible if a husband has a little extra leverage to ensure that, uh, the, that, uh, that the wife doesn't take advantage of him. We could have conversations like that, and I think, I think you're wrong. I think I'd win the conversation. But, but you know, that, that's always something to talk about. To say that we're not going to bring up divorce before marriage uh, in the year 2024 in the United States where divorce rates are what they are, every young Faisalco girl who gets married knows there's, such, knows there's such a thing as divorce. If you're mature enough and old enough to get married, you should at least be able to have a five-minute conversation about divorce. Uh, it's not like, uh, you know, it's not like divorce is is nothing you've ever encountered in your in your life people are divorced around you it's it's a topic and, and you know when you buy a life insurance policy um and even a young couple let's say that has their first baby and is buying a term life insurance policy so you sit down and you have a mature conversation about death even though no one wants to die and even though you hope that no one will ever cash in on a uh, life insurance policy because you hope no one's going to die but Real people and serious people have conversations about life cycle events that are inevitable, uh, or hopefully not inevitable, but that but are possibilities. And uh, I just I find it hard to understand why you why you would shy away from a conversation, especially when the whole concept of this document is rooted in this idea that's a very beautiful idea of mutual respect at the beginning of a marriage. That you know a chassan saying to his kala that even if somehow things are going to go south and even if you know this is going to end up in some terrible place i promise you here and now that i'm not going to take advantage of you and i'm not going to um put you in a place that you shouldn't be in and i'm not going to use a halakhic instrument as leverage against you let's just sign on the dotted line to say that we you know we respect each other at least at least that much to me that's the perfect way to enter into a marriage and, and then what about the fact that my grandparents never did this? So, so my Zadie, my, my Alta Zadie, they, they, so they never did this. So why should we need to do this? Yeah, your, your great-great-grandparents probably didn't have life insurance policies either. You know, life is complicated and we live in a society where you have to deal with the facts in front of you. So, um, you know, if we could go back to the European shtetl where no one moved around and where the rabbis had absolute authority, 
So, you know, maybe we could choose to do that, but it's not an option, it's not on the table. So you gotta deal with the reality as it is. So last question, what, what, what are your hopes for, for the prenup in the future? Like what is, what's your aspiration? I really do hope that it, that it gains more ground, uh, like I said, across a broader, a broader segment of our community, because I think it's, a, it's an elegant document that really works, that, that, that addresses the problem that it's meant to solve and um, and uh, you know, I think the more people that get behind this document, the the fewer problems of Aguna we have, the, the fewer instances of Chil Hashem we'll have when it comes to the divorce process. I can even imagine, you know, if there were some segments of the community that for some reason just couldn't swallow the support obligation, but agreed on the first part that says you'll name a Bezdin, that will handle it. That would also go. Uh, significantly um, towards solving the Aguna problem and, and making instances of Egon less prevalent, assuming that they choose a Bezdin that's, uh, that's, that's responsible about this and it's oriented towards getting these cases uh, resolved you know, quickly. This is incredibly helpful. I know there was a number of questions in the room. It's going to flip around. Sorry, you want to start off and then this will ask you. I'm just going to flip around so you can have an opportunity to see. Are we here? There we are. Thank you, Rabbi Weissman, for, for being here. I have a couple of questions. I'm one of the attorneys that are here. Um, a few questions. If, um, if a man refuses to come to Basin of America one year, two years, we understand that his support accumulates. How often does it work out that he says, okay, I'm ready to come to Basin of America now, but only if you waive the late support or the support that, you know, the two years worth of, of support? Um, in another sense, um, is there how many rabbis are part of based in America? And if one of the parties feels that the other spouse um, knows anyone on the panel, um, does either party have a right to say, nope, I don't want this rabbi, I want another rabbi. Um, and um, is there, what does, what kind of education does the panel have as far as background I mean, I know some some attorneys in the Basin, and some of them are bankruptcy attorneys. Some of them are other kinds of attorneys. What kind of um, rigorous preparation do these attorneys slash rabbis go into? It's not like there are dayanim in like in Britain where they go through a rigorous um, role of education to understand dayanim. Does the Basin of America have a right to? legally summons someone to testify um, as they do in court and is there generally in an arbitration there is no appeal process which is something that a person gives up um, when they go into arbitration is there a method within basement of America for someone to say I really think that I was rooked I want someone to review the, the, the what the panel says and this is the reason why. Okay, so I'll, I'll try to address those in reverse order. The, the, the last question first. Um, <coughs> excuse me. One of the concerns that lawyers have often with arbitration is the lack of, a, of, of a appeal process. Um, that's true about secular arbitration as well as religious arbitration. Uh, and that's true uh, in these cases as well, except that the, the, one, the one thing I should point out is that the Bethan of America within its rules and procedures has an appeal, has an internal appeal process. 
So you kind of can get a second look at the case by an appeal dying, meaning under our rules and procedures, if within 20 days after we issue a decision, you file an appeal and say that we, we got it wrong as a matter of halacha, um, it goes up to the, 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 you know, there's exchange of papers on, there's submissions from both sides on that issue. It goes then up to the Av Bezdin, Rabbi Willig, who might hear it himself or who might delegate it to um, another member of the Bezdin um, who hasn't, you know, who didn't sit on the lower panel. And we'll review our own internal decision and issue a um, appeal decision uh, on that. So we have our own internal appeal process. Obviously, it's not uh, the same as being reviewed by a secular court judge like you'd have, you know, in secular court. But there is a second look at it, at least at the Besden of America. Um, that's as far as that goes. In terms of subpoena power, um, under New York's arbitration law, you can file in court to subpoena witnesses, even in the course of an arbitration. So that's one way that that might happen. The other way that it might happen, usually, this is usually more relevant for commercial cases than matrimonial cases. Because um, in matrimonial cases, or even in commercial cases, the other thing we could do that other than subpoena witnesses is, or give leave to a party to go to court to, to you know, to to do a force subpoena to, to force someone to testify is we can kind of threaten a negative inference. We could say, look, if you have this witness under your control and this witness is um, refusing to um, appear, we could make a negative inference, you know, based on that refusal. Uh, in terms of conflicted Dayanim, we have a deep bench of Dayanim with varying levels of experience. Um, and so if there's a Dayan who is um, you know, as a relationship with the party, we will not staff that die on the case. Uh, and your, your first question was accumulation or waiving accumulated support. A lot of this plays into the, you know, exactly how the dynamics of, of the case work. Meaning the prenup is kind of premised on the idea that a person doesn't want a money judgment against them and that the threat of that money judgment will incentivize the early giving of a get. So that is and it works almost always. Um, if uh, support accumulates, if support accumulates, then uh, you know, then you know, there's always possibility of bartering accumulated support for the get. But even that will hopefully play out in a shorter timetable than had there not been a support obligation in place, and will hopefully give incentivize the giving of the get. 